0: Today is September 25th, 2009, and my guest is Gary Stern, who just recently stepped down from being president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. He is the author with Ron Feldman of the book, Too Big to Fail, The Hazards of Bank Bailouts. Gary, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you.
0: Your book, Too Big to Fail, um, which is the subject of our conversation, uh, it changed my life. I don't say that too often about books here on Econ Talk, occasionally, Uh, I was in the Stanford bookstore a few months ago, and somehow, even though they have a very large selection of economics books, and they only had one copy of yours, and it was just the spine showing. It wasn't face out, as they say in the business. But I, the title was Big Print, and it, it caught my eye, and I thought, well, too big to fail. I need to know more about that. I picked it up. I didn't know much about the history of bank bailouts, and I saw that it was written, I think, in 2004. And figured, well, you know, that was a while back. It's probably not so relevant. But I leased through it and I I thought, you know, I need to understand this. So I bought it. And uh, it really helped me understand what I consider the fundamental question and questions of the financial crisis. And listeners have, have heard me ask about this many times. You know, why would a firm like Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers or Fannie Mae take so much risk? Why would they be so leveraged? Why would they put themselves in a position where a bad uh, quarter would kill their firm? Why weren't there more natural forces of prudence to restrain them? Yes, there have been bailouts in the past, I thought to myself, but they were always partial bailouts. They always punished equity holders, and I thought you know, punishing equity holders, that should induce some prudence. But what your book showed me was that punishing equity holders while bailing out creditors and bondholders and other counterparties – has some subtle incentives uh, that are not so obvious. And to understand those incentives, uh, I'd like you to start with the modern history of bank bailouts in the last 25 years. What has happened and what form have they taken?
1: Well, of course, if you go back 25 years, you go back to continental Illinois, which is sort of the forefather of this, at least in modern times. Um, Continental Illinois at the time was a very highly regarded commercial bank uh, and, a, and a significant large one as well. Uh, when it failed, uh, due, due largely, as I recall, to uh, energy-related um, exposures throughout the uh, country, uh, the creditors of Continental Illinois, large and small, and in fact, in their case, went beyond the creditors, were protected by the federal government. Uh, and the reason for that the protection So, they didn't suffer any losses. And the reason for that protection was policymakers' concerns about spillovers or contagion effects, which just means that uh, the concern was that problems at Continental would adversely affect other large financial institutions, important financial markets, and ultimately the performance of the economy itself in terms of output and employment and so forth, that there would be significant negative consequences. And so the decision was made. to try to limit the damage, limit the spillovers, uh, and therefore avoid the the adverse consequences that would follow.
0: They were the eighth um, largest bank in the United States at the time, I think.
1: Seventh largest or something Seven, like yeah. that. So they were yeah. big. I mean
0: the the irony, of course, is that most people listening have never heard of them That's they're, right. because <laughs> they're gone. Uh, you know, so this some <laughs> and, obscure event. Pardon me? It sounds like some obscure event. Some bank was bailed out, but it was a very large bank, and right. I think you said they had uh, – Something like five thousand counterparties. So the worry was they were so connected with all these other creditors and, and borrowers and lenders that it would make a mess.
1: Exactly, and and the, among their creditors, they had borrowed a lot of money from um, community banks uh, around the country, and in some cases, the community banks had exposure to Continental well in excess of their capital. So that you know, you, if Continental were allowed to fail, there would no no doubt have been cascading into Wide range of other financial institutions, including including a host of community banks, um, but that wasn't the only uh, but that wasn't the only problem. But that was part of it. Uh, so Continental Illinois was, you know, as I say, the fo- the forefather of this. And in fact, in congressional testimony following the um, Continental Illinois episode, the controller at the, of the currency at the time indicated that there was something like eleven. Banks in the country that he considered too big to fail, and of course that sent a pretty strong signal to the creditors of those institutions, at least that they were not going to be exposed to losses, no matter how big the risks uh, that the, uh, the the institutions of which they were creditors, no matter how large those risks uh, were taken.
0: Now, the technical name for that is moral hazard. That's what the yep. economists call it. I, it's a really ugly phrase. Doesn't convey anything about. What, what it really is, it's a simple idea, which is, as you say, that, that the normal forces of prudence for a creditor is to make sure that the institution that you're lending to doesn't go bankrupt. It's all you care about. You just want them to stay in the, in the black and so they can repay you for the loan you made.
1: Exactly, because creditors, unlike equity holders, creditors don't get any upside. If you if you make a loan to a bank or whomever, you're going to get you're going to collect your interest payments over time and expect to get your principal back at the end of the day. um, No matter how well the institution does, you won't do any better than that. Equity holders have a are are making a whole different uh, that's a whole different kind of transaction. And so, imposing losses on equity holders is it doesn't do any good in terms of dealing with moral hazard
0: that seems, uh, because that, seems they counterintuitive. Get the that seems counterintuitive right they don't want to lose their they don't want to lose their their equity why would they why would they want to lose
1: all their money well i think I think part of the answer there depends on the how diversified the equity holder is and for example, if you are a large institutional investor uh owning uh, equity in lots of different country uh, companies around the uh around the country and perhaps around the globe you don't have large exposures to anybody so even if somebody goes bankrupt that doesn't have a big uh, a big effect on your performance uh, i would contrast that to a uh, community bank that say is family owned and the family has a uh, has a lot of their personal wealth tied up in the equity of the bank well they they have lots of incentives to be prudent uh, but you can't say the same thing about the um Equity, equity holders of uh, large institutions where the equity is broadly held uh, across the world in very in very small proportions by every institution.
0: Yeah, this was a deep uh, insight for me because in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, you have the bondholders, creditors, and the equity holders. And you tend to think of the equity holders as a group standing off on the side, watching what the firm's doing, saying, hey, now, don't be too risky. But there's no such group. There's no group that's sitting there with all their wealth in, in, in that one stock that would be extremely stupid. There might be some people foolish enough and reckless enough and naive enough to invest their entire wealth in one stock. But when we say the equity holders, it makes it sound like they have a particular interest. But, of course, they're diversified, as you point out. Right. And, and a high-risk stock adds a little zest to their portfolio because it right. might not go broke.
1: Well, exactly, and they and you know, there it's a risk and return thing. They know exactly, yeah. that uh, you don't get any above normal returns without above normal risks. Uh, I think they hope that in sufficiently diversifying their portfolios, uh, they can diversify some of that risk away. And perhaps some good professional investors do in fact do that. Uh, and of course, to they the make- extent that they do that, uh, they certainly don't exert any discipline on the management of the institutions we're discussing.
0: Uh, now the management that's themselves are stockholders, right? Uh, often, not always, but often they are. Uh, they have an equity stake as well, and surely they don't want to
1: be wiped out. Well, that's correct, and and uh, that's something that I've been thinking about for quite some time. And I think that's where we get back to the moral hazard issue. I don't think that uh, the uh, management or large shareholders of some of the institutions that got into serious difficulty. Uh, were were, um, excessively greedy or greedier than management in the past or anything like that. I think they were responding to the incentives they confronted. And and one way of thinking about that is if creditors expect to be protected, then they have no incentive to worry about the risks the institution is taking, which is just another way of saying that risk-taking is mispriced, it's priced too low. And we know that when something is priced too low, too much of it will be taken on. And I think that's what happened in uh, in some of the very high-profile cases uh, over the last couple of years. Now, obviously, some large institutions avoided the problems, um, at least avoided them to the extent that they 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 didn't uh, they didn't either go out of business or require bailouts or um, so forth. But, of course, they did suffer, suffer substantial declines in equity values, at least for a time. In the short run. Um, but that's where I think the risk mispricing of risk uh, matters. And it's also true, of course, some managements are better than others. And uh, so some firms managed to avoid the worst of this, even though their creditors may have believed that they would be protected.
0: Well, the other factor, and I, I learned this from a conversation with Paul Romer, uh, the other factor, of course, is the salary. So their downside risk – it's true they don't want their equity to be wiped out, but they usually can't cash in their equity. So when they lose, in the case of the recent calamity, hundreds 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 of millions of dollars in stock value and equity value as their stocks fell, they were comforted by the fact that, one, they couldn't have cashed that out when they were high. And secondly, they made very, very large sums of money in salary along the way. And they did sell some of their stock in the good times. So they're worth – many of them are worth hundreds of millions of dollars despite the fact that they, their stocks went down.
1: Uh, yeah, and presumably the smart ones, even where they owned a lot of uh, company stock, uh, diversified the rest of their assets away. Exactly. So they, they – whatever losses they suffered, it, it wasn't on their entire portfolio.
0: Yeah, they were making 10, $20 million a year, and they weren't in cash, and they weren't using that. To right. buy up their uh, own stock, they're get to buy other stuff that was, of course, safer. Which because they're not stupid, <laughs> right? Uh, contrary to what uh, you know, the standard view that they were just so greedy they couldn't stop and you know uh, dancing while the music was playing. <laughs> they, they were. They were prudent with their own money.
1: Well, and I think yeah, I mean, I think it it it, it uh, strains credibility to somehow believe that uh, people are more greedy in the uh, first decade of the 21st century yeah. than they were. Ten or twenty or thirty or forty years ago,
0: yeah, it's a strange uh, view of human nature, right? <laughs> but let's go back to the history. I want to because I want to uh, get us to the to the present with a little bit more of the past. So Continental Illinois, all of their creditors and bondholders are uh, avoid any cost directly. Of course, you know the the bonds go down. I assume in the in the interim period when there's uncertainty about what's going to happen, but once the bailout is announced, the bonds. Return their full amount uh face value to those who hold on to them. Exactly, and they had equity holders, right? Yep, and they were wiped out.
1: You know, close uh, uh, close to wiped out. Yeah. I don't think they were entirely wiped out in the Continental case. Because in
0: some of these, but they weren't. Excuse me, they, they weren't coddled by the government in any form. Is a better way to say it. Um, right. So that was 1884. It was a long time ago. It was one event. You do have the testimony you mentioned where the. uh Office The head of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency makes the imprudent remark that, well, actually, it's not just this one. We'd bail out all all the top 11. Right. Uh, And what happens going forward that reinforces or not that belief that large financial institutions will be uh, taken care of in the creditor-debtor side?
1: Well, I think one of the things that happened, although it it – it's not something that we emphasized in the book and I don't think it has been emphasized, but I think you know there was another there was another uh banking crisis in sort of the late eighties early nineteen nineties, and a lot of savings and loans institutions failed, and a lot Correct. of people lost money yep. but there was also uh episodes of forbearance where some large financial institutions had you marked their balance sheets to market would have would have been seen to be insolvent um but um that wasn't that wasn't done in fact they were given time to recover which is, which in fact they did but i'm sure that you know creditors are pretty sophisticated people and i'm sure creditors understood uh what was going on during that episode so i think that probably served to reinforce the no- well i'm sure it re- served to reinforce the notion that if you were a creditor of uh, a systemically important financial institution however you care to define that term if you were a creditor of such an institution, uh, you were likely to be protected either directly or, or indirectly if the institution got into significant difficulty. The, the next inter- high-profile episode yeah. um, was really long-term capital management, which was a a, a different kind of fish altogether, but On I think uh, creditors drew the same conclusion.
0: So let's talk about that. Before we do, though uh – during this period between 80, the long term capital management happened in 1998. Uh, in that 14 year period uh, you, before that, you point out in the book, many, many banks went uh, broke. Mm-hmm. And the FDIC uh, covered many, many, almost every dollar of depositors' money, even when it exceeded the limits the FDIC uh, had, had promised to guarantee. Exactly. Which, of course, we-
1: go ahead. Well, I was going to say I mean that changed with the legislation passed in in nineteen ninety one I believe called fiditicia when um, and there's two things significant about fidicia at least. First of all, the government had to engage in least cost resolution of uh, uh, bank uh, in terms of resolving banks that that became insolvent or were close to becoming insolvent what does that and mean? the idea behind that was to in fact impose losses on creditors. And if you look at the history of, of, um, resolution of bank problems following Fidisha until the recent episode and putting long term capital aside, um, I think you'd see that the FDIC did in fact, um, did in fact pursue that policy. Uh, having said that, um, there was also in Fidisha uh, an out, uh, that, that they by the way, that, an out that I think, Uh, deserved to be there, that basically said to the uh, regulators, uh, uh, you um, could avoid least cost resolution if you thought there would be significant systemic adverse consequences from uh, pursuing that policy with regard to a particular institution. Uh, So there was an out. Now, I think a lot of people thought that tradition dealt with the too-big-to-fail problem. I think there was it wasn't unanimous, but I think there was a pretty widespread conviction, uh, conviction that because of least-cost resolution and some other things in fiduciary, it dealt with too big to fail. My co-author and I, Ron Feldman, and I uh, didn't reach that conclusion at all. Uh, we, we thought, in fact, that fiduciary did not effectively address too big to fail. And for better or for worse, uh, because we that turned loophole. out to be right.
0: Because of that loophole.
1: Well, because, yes, because of the loopholes, and because the loophole was simply mirrored, actually, what happened in the Continental Illinois case. Um, what, what, part of the loophole is you've got to have agreement among the FDIC, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, and the President and Secretary of Treasury that you're not going to pursue least-cost resolution. Well, all of those, those are the people who were exactly involved in the decision to, um, to bail out the creditors of Continental Illinois. So uh while while some people thought that that, uh, that escape clause in fiducia was very unlikely to ever be invoked we thought heck they were just formalizing uh what was past practice
0: but you do point out just now that that in the interim there were some pay, prices paid by creditors for for That's bad right. decisions in this That's period right. what about uh and it's interesting to me you don't you don't mention uh, the savings and loan, and you don't mention any of the uh, the Mexican crisis or the um, uh, any of the other international crises before 1998. Right? Is there some role that they played in percept in the perception of creditors?
1: Um, you know i I think the I think the key observation is the one I mer- made earlier about forbearance. I don't think the savings and loan situation um, or the foreign debt crises. Uh, had had any significant separate effects. Um, I do think that uh, you know you and I have both commented now that uh, some creditors in the wake of Fidisha, some creditors did um, lose money. Losses were imposed on them in the week. Those were all creditors of relatively small financial institutions, yeah, that's and that's that's a, obviously a very significant distinction. That is, Fidisha was really never tested. Until the recent episode. Now that's good news and bad news. Of course, we had a pretty long period of financial stability, all things considered, uh, and that's the good news. The bad news is, uh, when tested, it, it was found wanting.
0: It wasn't used, and and I'm I'm sorry to report that uh, when I interviewed Alan Meltzer about this uh, some months back, I asked Alan why we didn't use FEDICIA in the current Fidisha in the current crisis, and he said, "Well, I told Hank Paulson to use it." And I said, what did Paulson say? And he said, well, I asked the banks, and they were against it.
1: (laughs) Well, they would be, because it removes uh, removes their management. That uh, that answer was predictable. Yeah,
0: it removes their management. So, of course, they were against it.
1: Yeah, no, I I think – but I think more fundamentally, uh, people should not have kidded themselves about the prospective effectiveness of fiducius. Um, And and without, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story here, but I think it's important to make the point that, you know, a a big part of our book is you have to prepare for these crises or disruptions or whatever you want to call them. You have to prepare for them well in advance. When you're in the middle of the crisis to sort of say, well, let's invoke fiducius, I mean, that's virtually meaningless. Um, It's... Part of this is is about preparation, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting preparation is necessarily uh, easy or without uh, or, or free or anything like that. But it's essential.
0: Well, I want to come in the last part of our conversation. I want to turn to ways we might improve that. So we'll, right. we'll, we'll get to that. Let's go back to long term capital management mm-hmm. in 1998. So they were a hedge fund, right. uh, and we talked about them recently uh, in conversation with William Cohen, the author of, of House of Cards. They were a hedge fund, uh, not a bank, uh, not FDIC insured, not SIPC insured. Uh, they were just a hedge fund that has, was highly leveraged, meaning they had borrowed a lot of the money they used to make their bets with.
1: Yeah, well, I think the long-term capital management is—you know—there's there's different ways of reading that situation, of course, because no government money was explicitly put in. Um, at most, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York sort of convened a group of counterpart large wall Street counterparties yeah. and persuaded them to you know put in enough uh, put in enough funds and uh, so that uh, long term capital management's positions could be unwound in an orderly way and I think the concern with long term capital management was Twofold. First of all, they did have exposures around the world to lots and lots of counterparties. So had they been unable to, uh, to honor their commitments, it would have had a, a global implications of unknown magnitude, but global implications uh, because there were so many counterparties involved. And there was also concerns about fire sales of assets which is uh, in a way a very similar concern that is if <clears throat> if because of their leverage long term capital management had to liquidate its positions in a, in very short order that would put a lot a lot of downward pressure on um, asset prices, and that other owners of those assets would would uh, experience capital losses, which would impair their conditions, and so on and so forth. Uh,
0: yeah, but so, can I just interrupt that for one second? Because that sure. that argument is used a lot in the uh, it was I'm sure it was invoked then, and it's used now to talk about why mark to market is quote part of the problem. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with that argument, it seems to me, so let me just make sure I understand it correctly. The argument is is that if they sell quickly, firms that hold similar assets will have to reprice them on their books. Their capital cushion then will no longer meet requirements. They'll have to start unwinding their positions, and you've got this, this horrible cascade, right? That's, that's the claim.
1: That's the story. Well,
0: but, but the problem with it is, is that it, it gets too much mileage out of the quickly part. It, it sort of says, well, but if they have to sell them quickly, well, let's say they had to sell them slowly. The real problem isn't the speed at which they have to sell them. It's that the assets aren't worth very much. Now, it's true that you know, that mark some markets for some assets are thin. But the real problem was is that what they were holding actually wasn't worth nearly as much as they had thought.
1: And you know, so the- I, I agree with you. Um, I'm not a. Uh, I'm an advocate of mark-to-market accounting, um, and I, you know, and I think. If amount to market accounting were pursued in a consistent way over time, it would clearly be would clearly be helpful rather than detrimental um, to financial stability. Uh, so you're, you're not going to get any counter argument from me on okay, that. Right? I'm on. Simply describing the the thinking is, right Go ahead. behind some of this. Go ahead. Yeah. So that you know, so I mean, that was the long-term capital management thing. But if you take a step back and you ask yourself. What's the reaction of uh, creditors to the way that was resolved? I would say it once again reinforced expectations of too-big-to-fail coverage.
0: And even though there was no government money, the fact that the government, when they called that meeting, it wasn't so voluntary. It wasn't like they were just a friendly matchmaker. They basically coerced those firms in the sense that to make them unhappy would have been costly. And of course, Bear Stearns was the only Wall Street firm that refused to go along with that. And they paid a reputational price uh, with their counterparties for and resentment. Right. Okay. So that was ninety eight. What's the next uh, next thing you think is important in the reputational effects of the of the expectational effects? Excuse me. Uh, of credit. Well, you know, I
1: think I, I think if you put if you think about the episode between nineteen the early nineteen nineties and the recent financial crisis, for the most part, that was a period of. Um, Tranquility in financial markets for the most part. Um, and um, so I would say that, you know, aside from the issues we've discussed, I can't off the top my head, but maybe you can, uh, think of, uh, you know, think of other, uh, other episodes.
0: I think there are two. Okay. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, one was 1991 when Drexel Burnham went out of business. I'm oh, government- sure, but, the- I, but I
1: was sort of moving on beyond that. And the go- Drexel- but the government let him go. Yep. They let them go and they wound them down in an orderly way. That's right. And
0: maybe we'll talk about that later. I have my own uh, sinister theory of why that they were one of the few that was left to die. Uh, but let's put that to the side. Uh-huh. I made a reference, and I don't know much about this, maybe you know more than I do, to the so-called uh, tequila crisis in the early 90s that when Mexico had problems, a lot of banks had lent them money. Yeah. And my understanding is, is that the, the federal government was very – eager not to see the US government was very eager not to see those uh those bills go unpaid. Am I incorrect about that?
1: You mean the Mexicans Mexicans' obligations to the U.S. bank? Correct. Yeah. No no I think you're right. Um I don't remember I don't remember the ins, ins and outs of that episode uh, to be to be um out, you know to, to offer a lot of commentary. Um I don't either so let's I, I um you know, I commented about forbearance earlier, and it wouldn't surprise me that uh, you know some of those um, international exposures were you know part of the reason that uh, that forbearance was practiced in the case of at least a handful of large institutions. When you say think forbearance.
0: Were, what do you mean? Explain that again.
1: Well, forbearance is when you when you look at a financial institution and you value its assets relative to its liabilities, and if you're rigorous enough about it, you might find out that the institution is insolvent. On the other hand, uh, in which case you'd have to deal with it, or in which, or you might at the minimum say they've got to raise more capital. Forbearance is when you're more generous in, in how you do the evaluations, uh, which is effectively giving the institution t- time um to repair the damage and and uh uh grow or find some other means out, out of the out of the situation.
0: And I think what you were saying before it's a subtle argument, right? You're saying that creditors when they saw the government not enforcing those capital standards or mark to market as rigorously as they normally would, saw that the government was trying to help them avoid
1: Yes. And you know, uh, I mean, and, and creditors are a very sophisticated group. So, you know, they—they they, at least, at least some of that population of creditors would recognize that forbearance was going on. Sure. And in fact, some of them, no doubt, were counting on it uh, when they when they uh, initiated their exposure to, to some of these organizations. Sure.
0: Now, one puzzle about this claim, and I'm sympathetic to it, but I, let me challenge it. Besides the the example of Drexel. Which is it's one example, but it's a big example. Uh, the other question would be if the claim is is that because of the uh reduced risk to creditors that these institutions became more risky, it's a bit of a puzzle as to why it took so long for it to blow up.
1: <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, oh sure. I know what you're saying. I have an um, idea, but I'd like to hear yours well i you know i I wish I had an answer to that question i think I think getting the timing of these kinds of things or or putting it the other way around, trying to predict in advance what's going to set off a financial crisis is virtually impossible now. I know that you know there are some people who claim that well uh you know they they recognize that uh residential real estate was overvalued and that The subprime lending was a problem, and that some households were way, uh, were in way over their heads, and so forth. And there's no doubt about that. But, um, you know, calling a financial crisis with anything like uh, accurate timing. Uh, that is that it was going to begin in August of 2007, as opposed to August of 2005 or August of 2011. Uh, you know, I'm not aware of anybody who really got who really got all of that right. And even if they did, I'm not sure they could repeat the performance. I mean, I think that is an absolutely daunting and absolutely daunting challenge.
0: But I guess you know part of it is the way I think about it, is that you know an institution like Fannie Mae, yeah, was inherently unstable. It was it was dysfunctional. Well, that's, that's certainly true. It was dysfunctionally designed in that there was an impression – this is the most extreme example of what we're talking about. It wasn't written into law, but it was as close as you could get that creditors and and lenders and bond buyers and, and securities buyers of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac stuff believed, correctly as it turned out, that the government would bail them out. And everybody understood, economists and, and, and observers, that that created a very unhealthy set of incentives for Fannie Mae – and that's why they had their own regulator. But it takes a while for that regulation process to get corrupted. Uh, and although you couldn't have said when it would get corrupted, it was not unreasonable to suggest that this was an unstable situation that would eventually blow up, and of course Which,
1: it did. Well, no, no, yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, lots of uh, regulators from lots of organizations testified before Congress about, about the inherent the inherent instability as you put it of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac it was it was widely recognized with with regard to those two institutions uh but there was obviously no strong desire to do anything about it
0: yeah well that that's a longer story but right um let's right. move on to the uh to the present and before just before we do that i want to ask you one more question about the incentives because i think this is um a key point that i'm just realizing and i want to see if you think i'm right if I am leveraged, that is, let's say I have a um, a two to one ratio between my uh, investments and my capital, uh-huh. so half of what I have invested is, say, assets of my own; the other half is borrowed. Right. Now, in that situation, which is a very, very, very low level of, of leverage, two to one, right. uh, I have this huge cushion. That if things go south on my investments, I've got my own – these assets are half of what I've got. They don't have to fall very far. Uh, If they fall very far, I'm still going to be able to compensate my borrowers. So my borrowers feel very good when they see – excuse me, my lenders. My lenders and creditors feel very good when they see I've got this big capital cushion of 50% of my investments to compensate them in case those investments turn out to not do so well. That's two to one. Now, my claim is – and. I want your reaction. My claim is is that if I live in a world of too big to fail, if I think and if my creditors believe that I am likely, not guaranteed, but likely to be bailed out, and of course it's all about likelihood because the future is uncertain both in the government policy and in my returns. I, I'm not trying to destroy my company. I don't know for sure what how my risky-ass investments will turn out. So if I'm at the 50-50 and and I'm living in a world of too big to fail, don't I have a natural incentive to increase that leverage as much as possible and and bet littler and littler of my assets and more and more of other people's money? Because those other people, one, they're comfortable because they think I'm probably going to bail them out. I might have to pay them a little bit more higher rate of interest, but they're comfortable – and I'm going to increase my rate of return on my asset base higher and higher and uh, encourage the riskier and riskier bets. Is that true?
1: I wouldn't disagree with that description in, in any serious way, but I think, I think the only thing I would do is I would emphasize a little bit more than you did um, the incentives or motivations of the creditors. That is, recognizing... Recognizing that they are going to be covered by the taxpayer, if not by the equity of the firm they're they're exposed to, uh, recognizing that that's where the mispricing of of risk takes uh, comes in. That is, they are willing to lend money uh, to this uh, organization to, to let them to permit them to leverage up at lower rates than otherwise would be the case, and so more leverage more leverage occurs than would otherwise be the case it's a lack of it's a lack of a market discipline um, that's you know a, a part of uh, in a very critical part of this story uh and it comes about because of the creditors expectations and um, so you know as long as those expectations are what they are uh this problem is going to persist and of course you know as lots of people have observed uh one of the outcomes of the last couple of years, although you know, obviously the jury the jury is still out. We haven't we haven't seen seen all the resolution of everything, but one of the outcomes of the last couple of years is probably to more deeply embed uh, expectations of uh, sure our creditor protection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The reason I think about that issue of of what would affirms. Optimal level of leverage be in the face uh-huh. of too big to fail is that it, it's puzzling why a firm would put as in the case of Bear Stearns or Lehman they're leveraged thirty three to one forty to one fifty to one meaning they're putting in a dollar or two of their own right. assets for every hundred dollars that you're gambling and when you do that one you put the 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 existence of the firm at risk because a small change in asset value wipes you out, which is a bit puzzling. so what are they getting in return? Well, it seems to me what they're getting in return is the opportunity to make much larger bets right because they're they're borrowing so much money on top of their assets, and of course they 're going to take riskier bets
1: as, as well, well I think it looked i think from the point of view of some of these firms, they could borrow relatively cheaply they 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 saw what they perceived to be investment opportunities of one type or another that you know no no doubt had some risk associated with them but given how inexpensively they could borrow they obviously believed they were going to be more than adequately compensated for the risk they were taking uh by the prospective returns on the on the assets they were acquiring um i mean that's that's got to be the nature of the calculation they were making and um you know obviously uh in several cases it, it became a cropper, and in several uh, cases but the, it but, didn't. You know, the ex-post result <laughs> is frequently different from the ex-ante expectation.
0: Yeah, but it's also easy to forget that a lot of them did fine, as you said earlier. They they survived it. They uh, got their cake and ate it too. Their stock didn't go to zero. They ended up having a big uh, return as their competitors were destroyed. And along the way, they made a lot of money. the 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 right. the, the worst part of of your story, when you said, and it really resonates when you say. You know, they could borrow at low rates of interest. Well, the question is why? How can you borrow at a relatively low rate of interest when you're putting those, those lenders at such risk, knowing that they're uh, in a world where a small change in asset values could destroy their comp- your company and therefore wipe out their, lo- their loan? And, of course, the standard answer is, well, they were every- – they just expected housing prices to keep going up. But the alternative answer is they were lending to each other. So their likelihood of being bailed out was even higher than if just you know it was the Chinese lending to Fannie Mae
1: well, and you know I mean the the um, except for in the case of Lehman Brothers, their bets turned out to be right. Yeah, <laughs> they were right. protected. So let's talk about and, um, yeah you
0: know, let's talk about Lehman Brothers, so uh, why do you think they were left to um, twist in the wind and were not bailed out?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I wasn't, let me be clear. I don't, I don't want to overstate my expertise or knowledge here. I wasn't on the spot in New York or Washington when those decisions were being made. My, uh, you know, um, officials have said that there was no effective means, uh, because this was before the passage of the TARP legislation and so forth, there was no effective means to deal with Lehman Brothers. Um, there were, reportedly anyway, a couple of potential uh, private sector acquirers um, who backed away, and that may be testimony to the fact that uh, uh, senior management at, at Lehman simply misjudged the situation and was uh, essentially asking too much. Uh, so that's a that, that may be part of the story uh but i I must ad- admit you know i'm viewing this from roughly a thousand miles away, not being on the scene um, and uh it it may have also been a, a view and i you know i again i don't have first hand knowledge of this that in the wake of all the that that in the wake of Bear Stearns and, the, and all that had gone on in the ensuing six months, that there was a view that, heck, uh, Lehman Brothers creditors had ample opportunity to adjust their exposures if they were, at a, if they were sufficiently concerned. And uh, if they didn't, if they didn't, that's too bad. And they should uh, bear some losses. Uh, you yes. so know, as it turns out, uh obviously people have have used lehman brothers as kind of a uh you know, a, a marker for the real onset of the of the deepening financial crisis uh and and so forth um i think maybe lehman gets a little too much blame there frankly and aig not enough i agree. uh because aig was a you know, triple A rated institution with exposures around the world with no effective, no effective, um, comprehensive supervision. And, um, and, and it really did come out of the blue. And I think what really shocked people, or at least I'll speak for myself, what really shocked me is I didn't know a lot about AIG, but I did know that yeah. they were big and I knew there would be lots of trouble if, uh, if AIG were permitted to, um, to fail.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there was a lot of other stuff going on, and it's just convenient, I think, for some folks to blame the failure to bail out Lehman as the onset of the crisis. Right. Well, I agree with you. Because I think the most uh, – consistent with your story, and I'm, I'm writing about this now in an essay, and I'll, I'll share it with you when I get to this, but – when I get it done. But this part I think is so fascinating. When Bear Stearns uh, – in March of 2008, Bear Stearns is, uh, dies. They're married off at a discount, a ridiculous discount that was later revised slightly. But they're married off to J.P. Morgan Chase, and as just as we've been talking about, all their counterparties, the creditors, lenders, and others, were uh, t- taken care of by J.P. Morgan Chase, and they were protected from any of the harm. The stockholders saw their investment go from 170, I think 172, in January of 2007 to two. Uh, it ended up. You know selling at ten, right, but that was very close to zero, and uh, a lot of people lost a lot of paper uh, profits on on that uh, but that was March September is six months later in between March and September, two things happen that are unbelievable. I don't think I've gotten enough attention. One is is that Lehman becomes more leveraged. <laughs> Lehman, whose books look a lot like Bear Stearns, who have very similar assets is somehow able to continue borrowing money, which to me suggests strongly that people thought that they would be taken care of in the event of a Bear Stearns crisis. The more dramatic example, though, is the money market fund, uh, Reserve Primary – I think that's the right order of the words – which is the oldest first money market fund, lends Lehman an enormous amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars during this period, and is holding that piece of paper – and then when Lehman goes bankrupt, they – the money market fund so, does the so-called breaking of the buck. They have to lower their, their asset value from a dollar to $0.97, cents, and that sends tremendous shockwaves through the, the financial world that, that even money market funds now maybe have taken on too much risk. But why would they do that? And the answer is they were, they were making – and I learned this fact from Arnold Kling and later a, a story by uh, uh, James Stewart recently in The New Yorker. Why would they do that and, and of course, the answer is partly, well, they figured there was a decent chance they'd get bailed out when Lima went did go bankrupt.
1: Yeah, you know it's interesting you it's interesting you bring up that case because I remember uh, back in the a friend of mine was running a money market fund back in the continental Illinois days, and so that was before but this was before Continental was bailed out, uh, but everybody knew Continental was shaky. And he was buying continental um, certificates of deposit for the money for his money market fund,
0: making his fund look really good that that quarter.
1: Well, and I asked him what he was doing, and and um, you know, you referred earlier to the, to the fact that a lot of this is a probability game because you don't know the future for certainty. And what he told me was, well, he was willing to buy one month or two month CDs because um, not because he was counting on a bailout but because he said to himself you know Continental will, will fa- may fail but not in the next month or two probably and um <laughs> you know i think in his case well in his case it worked out because continental creditors were bailed out um but it was an interesting interesting window into how uh investors think about some of these sure. things and you know even if you think even if you think the institution is of poor quality and may not last uh you you have a timing dimension as well and you may say to yourself eh, you know is something is something really terrible going to happen in the next thirty days? And if you answer that question, no, you might be willing to buy the paper.
0: Yeah, that's very important because, yeah. of course, even in the case of of Bear Stearns, the plug gets pulled on them when when lenders finally in the re- overnight repo market, the repurchase market, say no more. And, right, and it, you have to ask then, well, why didn't they just say, well, the government's going to bail us out? Why Why did they finally say no more? What's your What's your answer to that?
1: Well, I think the answer to that was they 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 did a, they did a risk reward calculation either explicitly or in the back of their heads, yeah. and said, you know, um, maybe the government's going to bail them out, but I just don't want to be there to find out. <laughs> yeah, and, uh... you know, a
0: little uncertainty there, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. L- let's, but before we get to the solutions to this problem or what we might hope would make it better, mm-hmm. uh, I want you to talk about something you mention in your book in passing in a few places. Which is uh, the reaction of people when you put this hypothesis forward? Because I've also had now that I've started, now that I'm a convert, I uh, yeah, I'm having the same issue, and I start to suggest that this history and 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 empirical uh, evidence on bailouts suggests that that there's a moral hazard problem. They say, but you're crazy. Equity right. holders still have a risk, and they're not going to let the firm do this, that, and the other. And so you've 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 presented your work, and you've talked about this widely in many audiences in many places. Uh, you get a lot of pushback. You get skepticism. T- talk about that, and also, I assume practitioners don't like to hear it either.
1: Well, I think I think there's yeah. You do get a lot of pushback, although less, quite honestly, less now than we did uh, yeah. than we did when the book first came out. You're looking a lot um, smarter. And, and, you know, I think, I, I think it takes several forms. Uh, one I mentioned earlier, uh, there were, there were until recently people who believed that Fedicia effectively addressed the problem, that we were just wrong, Um, that the issue had been addressed and was much ado about nothing. Um, I think, I, I think as history has demonstrated, we were in fact right. Uh, I would have, in a way, preferred not to have been you. vindicated, but, but there we are. Yeah. Um, I think there are people who believe that it's just not good public policy to impose losses on creditors of systemically important institutions. And while I can't quite get my arms around what underlies that view, um, um, I think think at a a more superficial level you can understand it, Uh, they simply must feel that it's potentially too disruptive um, to do that. And so you've got to find alternatives. Uh, a, third, a third thing that, um, that we hear uh, and have heard is that, well, um, the, the best thing to do is to uh, make supervision and regulation sufficiently effective sure. uh, that you, you can prevent these episodes going forward, and yep. and in my experience in, in this environment, and given the incentives that that we confront, that's just not possible. I mean, we should make supervision and regulation as effective as it can be, uh, without you know without squandering resources, of course. But um, we should not kid ourselves that supervision and regulation by itself is capable of dealing with the too big to fail problem. Because Stock I think. Record. I think the track <laughs> record suggests it's just not. Yeah, uh,
0: it's um, not a lot of evidence
1: that it's right. That this. Right. Time, I mean, that's a that's a wish, and uh, you know, we'd all like effective supervision, but it's going to be it's not going to be sufficient.
0: Well, you know, one of the reasons, and again, I've learned this from Arnold Kling, his recent paper. Uh, I'll put a link up to it uh, on the crisis. Has this some of this in there that you, you think you've stiffened, say, capital requirements? Right. And therefore, you've made, a, say, a cushion now that, that there's going to be uh, less systemic – fewer systemic losses in the case of, of right. a bankruptcy. But those regulations tend to be flexible. There's a political dynamic that's often ignored. It's it's like when economists – and I can't believe they still do this. But they say, well, we have to reconstitute Fannie and Freddie because they're crucial for liquidity. So we've we got to recreate them. But this time, like it's going to be different. This time, we'll just have different – Regulatory strictures so they won't get out of control.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, we had no, that before, course, it, right? No, no, I, I agree with you on on that. I, um, I, I don't, I don't have the solution as what we ought to do with Fanny and Freddie, but I agree that um, sort of somehow believing that you're going to preserve the incentives but have better supervision and therefore have a better outcome, I think, is kidding yourself. Yeah. Um, so let's
0: let's turn to the solutions to, the, to too big to fail itself. Uh, you talk about a lot of them in the book. Some of them are. I think, a little more convincing than others. Why right. don't you lay out, and you're honest about the riskiness of these some of these solutions, talk about what we might do to encourage more prudence and restraint on the part of creditors uh, than we have now.
1: Well, you you started at exactly the right spot from, from my point of view, Russ, and that is we've got to find a way to – Credibly, And I would emphasize the word credible. You've got to find a way to credibly put creditors of these systemically important institutions at risk of loss. You can't simply say, you are now going forward, we're not going to bail you out. That's not a credible statement. You have to take actions so that they understand the regime or the environment, or whatever word you want to use, has changed, and that indeed, there's a much higher probability, it's not going to be 100%, but there's a much higher probability going forward that they will lose money if one of these institutions gets into difficulty than than was the case in the past. And earlier, I talked a little bit about preparation. And preparation, I do believe, is very important. And let me just describe what what I have in mind there. Uh, As I indicated, uh The reason policymakers intervene in these cases in my judgment uh is because of concern about spillovers that would have adverse consequences for other institutions and major financial markets and ultimately for the economy itself so preparation means identifying and then taking steps to limit those spillover effects uh um, and you know that's a, that's an analytical question. Uh, but it's something that can be done. A lot of that information is already available. You look at where do these large institutions have major exposures, in which markets, to which counterparties, and so forth. And you ask, also can ask yourself, uh, are those exposures prudent? In some cases, you may decide that, indeed, uh, the institution is very large, but because of the way, it, because of the nature of its business and the nature of exposure, it doesn't pose any systemic risks, and then you don't have to do anything. Uh, and then if it fails, you, you, you're confident that you can impose losses on creditors because you've prepared, you've done the analysis, and you uh, have satisfied yourself that the spillovers are manageable. Um, uh, in cases where you're concerned, uh, you're gonna have to use, um authority, to get them to reduce <laughs> those exposures. Uh, you don't want to reduce to zero because you can't have a financial world where nobody has, nobody does a trade with each other, or has exposures to each other, or positions, assets, or anything like that. But that doesn't mean in some cases they shouldn't be smaller or backed by more capital, uh, than they currently are. Uh, but, <clears throat> but that's a, that's a great emphasis on preparation and it's work that should be done in tranquil, Sound times yeah. in financial markets because in the middle of a crisis you're dealing with a crisis you're not pr- trying to understand uh, the uh, the prospective nature of exposures that might bring on the problem.
0: Let me ask so, you about two problems with that. That yes, did you want to did you want to say something else? No, no that that uh, that covered that. What I worry about in that you know that's appealing and and it's a uh, it's always good to add transparency. It seems to me um, the worry I have is that one if you have a policy that says if we think you're not too systemically connected we're going to let you the chips fall where they may right uh that's going to create an incentive for people to be more connected you know some people have claimed i don't think it's true but some people have claimed that lehman's big mistake is they weren't <laughs> they weren't interconnected enough they they blew it they should have been taking riskier bets with more people and but certainly if if it became known and it was a credible promise that we were going to be more um we we're going to make some suffering take place, then you have an incentive to be more... Um, I,
1: I take your point, but that's where the other side of my suggestion is important, that where institutions... I mean, this has to be ongoing work, so it's not once a year you look at these organizations or something like that, but where, where you see exposures that you consider to be excessive relative to you know, either the capital or the management ability, then then the authorities have to be prepared to intervene and to say, you've got to reduce those.
0: That that Um, raises raises my second question: Is how do you keep that from being an ad hoc uh, process that is prone to rent seeking and other problems? So, you know, one of the claims which I always find strange to solve the problem is, well, we just can't let we won't let institutions get too big. But that's a nice statement. You know, implementing that in a policy world is really fraught with uncertainty. What would you make them sell stuff? Would you what stuff? How would you decide? How would you measure it? So I'd worry that in in the case where if I've got an ongoing monitoring process and I'm as say the chair, whether it's the head of the Fed or whether it's Treasury or some independent new organization that gets set up, right. I'm gonna be intervening in relationships between financial institutions on an ongoing basis. It's not really as much of a market process as it as it as it would seem to be. Isn't that gonna yeah, to lead to you some- know,
1: um you're quite right that there's always devils in the details? And uh, I, I think it's I, I think until this kind of proposal is implemented, we won't know in advance where all of its strengths and all of its shortcomings are. So I certainly agree with that. On the other hand, let me point out that just because there may be some say supervisory discretion here, doesn't mean that doesn't mean that policy is random. And my guess is. That if policy is impl- these kinds of things are implemented in a consistent way, one of the virtues will be that the the financial institutions uh, of concern will understand what the um, uh, what what the rules the policymakers are using, whether they're explicit or implicit, what the rules policymakers are using, and will come to adjust and perhaps adjust pretty quickly. Um, yeah. In any event, um, you know I don't. Um, while while I don't. Well, this proposal has the uh, weakness of not having been um, of not having been tried so we can't say for sure uh it's going to work the things that have been tried haven't worked yeah, and so it seems to me that you know before we dismiss it uh we ought to try it
0: yeah well it'd be better uh, than it might be better than what we've got let me right. uh, let me ask you about the, your your first point which i yes. found i just find it interesting uh uh, both politically and and psychologically, the, the idea that we ought to put in positions of authority people who could at least either by their past reputation, by the statements they'd made at their hearings. Uh, I think you talk about at least that they were plausibly people who might not uh, bail out large institutions. Right. So let me play um, – uh, let's have a little uh, imaginative, imaginative uh, session here. Uh, suppose that Gary Stern was made the uh, head of this new body that's in charge of uh, systemic risk. Right. You, you're a pretty credible guy. You know, you've written a book about the dangers of too big to fail. Uh, you've appeared on Econ Talk, where you talked about all the destructive right. <laughs> aspects of it. You've got a reputation. Right. Is it imaginable that in that situation, you would keep your reputation as opposed to bow to the political pressure to bail out those creditors?
1: Well, you know, the short answer to that is yes, but the longer answer is that's why preparation is so important. And, and let me just try to highlight that um, yeah, again. I mean, I don't think you can ask me or anybody else if if a financial crisis comes out of the blue and you haven't done the preparation. I don't think you can ask any. Any policymaker to to let some large institution go so that you can teach the creditors a lesson because the, that may not pass a cost benefit test it's too late The cost may be too large for the economy uh, relative to the lesson taught to the creditors, but that's why that's exactly why preparation is so important if If the guy who gets to make this decision is sitting there and he knows because that uh, that that they have acted to limit spillover effects earlier. Uh, then then you don't have so much trouble making the decision to not protect creditors. And the reason you don't is because the costs are much reduced. And, and so that's what's so critical here, in my judgment, about preparation. If you can get those costs down, then the benefit-cost equation uh, looks much better, and indeed... If you communicate to the creditors in advance the nature of your preparation and the reason behind it and so on and so forth, you'll get better pricing of risk-taking in the marketplace, which will make these events less likely, not zero, but less likely going forward. So it it has the potential, in my judgment, to set up a virtuous circle um, if uh, if you communicate what you're all about as well. And I think that's important.
0: Do you get any traction for that idea? Do people are people listening to that and thinking, considering it seriously?
1: Um, I, you know, not as much traction. The answer is not as much traction as I would hope. Um, and i don 't know the reason i, I don 't know the reason for that obviously there 's a variety of different proposals around, and we 've modified our proposal some over time as well um, and and by the way, some of what, what is being proposed does make perfectly good sense higher capital requirements for higher perhaps uh, higher insurance premiums perhaps uh, it's not the worst uh, ideas in the world. holding uh, you know holdings of greater holdings of liquid assets for systemically important institutions and so forth. Uh, um, I, those all uh those all would be helpful although by themselves uh they don't get to, they don't get to, more, to the moral hazard problem
0: yeah my my uh whether it's my cynical side or my realistic side or whatever you want to call it for me the politics are um are such that this too big to fail policy is a way to occasionally not occasionally on an ongoing basis basically reward some very politically powerful people
1: And I'm not asking you to
0: respond to that, uh, but what has in fact happened, and this is the – I think should not be forgotten. What has in fact happened over the last 15 months is that the average American has sent hundreds of billions of dollars to the richest – some of the richest people on the face of the earth. And that to me is – I think the more people understand it, the better the chance that the political incentives will change. If people don't understand it, the political incentives are going to stay in place um let let, we're almost out of time i want to ask you two questions one a very uh a naive one and one a, a bit challenging the naive question is this if um if bear stearns had failed or if we had done nothing in the face of lehman's failure the failure of lehman some say you know prompted an enormous uh response because of the spiking of interest rates what if we had done nothing what if Obviously, there's you know, personal costs that are, have political influence, but you know, this worry that credit markets would freeze up, what would have been the real side? Do you have a feel for what the real economy implications of that would be? What were people worried about and talking about that at least justified? I've been appalled at how unjustified in the, in the communication sense these interventions were. What do you think the best case you can make for those interventions?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we, we of course don't have what, what we economists like to call the counterfactual. So, yeah, it is, it is pretty speculative. And I, and speaking for myself, of course, I don't know how bad, uh, things would have gotten in the financial markets or in the economy itself had Bear Stearns, uh, been let to fail or had Lehman Brothers been handled in a, in a different way. My own view of that is, um, difficult as it is to say it, uh, I'm glad we didn't find out. I do think the consequences would have been uh, exceedingly severe. Um, I can't quantify them, um, I would, but I would be willing to place at least a small bet that if we were having this conversation uh, in today, but in the wake of a, of a different decision, uh, we would be looking at a, a much weaker economy with much more dire prospects than we are right now. Now, I could be wrong. Uh, and I'm not one who typically underrates the resilience and flexibility of the markets or of the economy. But on the other hand, you know, um, history gives one pause yeah. uh, about inadequate responses to major financial disruptions. Yeah. And so I think you've got to be careful. Yeah,
0: Well said. Last question. Um, the It's multi-part, so it's a little tricky. The, the Federal Reserve balance sheet right now has something between six and $800 billion of mortgage-backed securities uh, that have been issued by Fannie and Freddie. Uh, they've been pouring money into Fannie and Freddie. They, they did two things, really. They bought up some old ones, and they've been then uh, buying new ones as Fannie and Freddie have issued those. What they're essentially doing is channeling money into mortgage markets to keep interest rates on loans low so that the housing market doesn't i think there i assume the logic is is that this way there won't be a um uh reduction and further reduction in, it's trying to keep the price of housing supported so there won't be a further default uh, on existing uh, loans uh two thoughts on this one is uh they're not marked to market <laughs> strangely enough uh they're probably not quite worth what the fed says they are uh that they have them on their books that's number one and number two what do you think the implications are for inflation as uh, things re- return to normalcy and the cash that's been pumped into the economy via those interventions uh, starts working?
1: Okay. Well, as as far as the first issue is concerned, the port purchase of – Substantial volumes of mortgage-backed securities, as well as some direct agency debt and, of course, Treasury debt. I mean, I think uh, the way I think about that is, I-, I think what really is dominant there is the macro objective, and what I mean, all I mean by that is, you know, the economy entered a recession at the end of two thousand seven. Uh, the recession lasted uh, probably until a couple of months ago. Uh, it was it was broad and deep and far reaching by many metrics and i think um, you would expect and in fact it had that a central bank uh would react uh would react significantly to that environment and to the prospects before it and when short term interest rates hit zero uh then obviously you had to look for other ways to to have a macro uh, effect and these were the logical places to look um not so much in my judgment because of concern about housing, although there certainly is that concern, but you want to try to operate in relatively broad, deep markets and also not get into the business of buying corporate credits or something like that, where then you wind up picking and choosing among, among quality and so on and so forth, which is really a can of worms. With regard to the balance sheet and inflation, you know, I think that, I think that issue is some, is exaggerated in the, in the following sense. Uh, well, two senses. Uh, one is while there's a, a very strong relationship between money and inflation in the long run, you have to emphasize long run, which is periods of five and more likely ten years. And if, if you go look at the evidence, and there's actually quite a bit of evidence. So, what happens to the balance sheet for a period of a year or two is not going to be decisive right. unless it persists. And that gets to the second point, which is you know the, the, the Federal Reserve and indeed all central banks. Always have a challenge, uh, in terms of making decisions about when to become less accommodative or when to start tightening or however you want to put it and by how much. And that's a, that's a challenge, um, after any recession and any period of substantial accommodation or ease. Um, I don't, I don't judge, jump to the conclusion, uh, that the Federal Reserve or other central banks are necessarily going to get it wrong this time. Indeed, um, if you look at the inflation performance of certainly the us economy but but much of the global economy uh since the early 1980s it's been a period of diminishing and, and ultimately relatively low inflation or stable prices for quite some period of time so i i think the nature of the challenge is similar to the challenges that are always faced and um you know while i can't guarantee that uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks will get it right. I think uh, history gives you at least some modicum of confidence uh, that they may.
0: Well, on that cheerful note, yeah. let's end. My, my guest today has been Gary Stern, author with Ron Feldman of the book we've been discussing, Too Big to Fail. Gary, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Good to talk with you, Russ.